welcome. Uh, we're on to the next chapter of the history of anatomy or the history of dissection. And this is uh, called the Cabinets of Curiosity, drawing the boundaries of the museum space. Um, I wanted to start with a couple of quotes as we usually do. This is from Piero Campesi's very interesting book, The Anatomy of the Senses, Natural Symbols in Medical and Early Modern Italy. It was put out by Polity Press in 1994. Quote, the museum body became a land of discovery, an edifying and devout museum, a tangible and immobile new world, open to meditation and exploration, whose penetralia could be subjected to obscene and disturbing scrutiny by eyes avid for knowledge. There's a second quote from Uli Lenka in her um, essay, uh, collection of uh, critical essays on the plastinated cadavers of Gunther von Hagens, which was edited by um, uh, J. Christine Jespersen and uh, Alicita Rodriguez and Joseph Starr was put out by Jefferson Press in 2008. And Uli Lenka writes, The museum is a memory site, a locator of commemorative record where society anchors the past. I quite like that phrase. Now, where some have called the 16th century the century of anatomy, one might perhaps think of the 18th century as the century of museums. That's pretty artificial. But this idea might sit well with the impression of a prevailing culture of museum going where there was some expectation by patrons of being rewarded by finding curiosities whose main claim to fame was their anatomical rarity. The history of these museums lay in part in the shock value provided by aberrant anatomy, one trumping the other with their display of fetal monstrosities and anatomical variations that could rival any nearby and potentially competitive freak show. These sorts of anatomical museums, loaded as they were with anencephalic babies missing their forebrains and conjoined or Siamese twins, can now usually be found and viewed only in university and hospital anatomy and pathology departments by special arrangement. Part of this has been the product of an evolving public cultural sensibility, even though this can sometimes be demarcated on ethnic or cultural grounds. The exhibition guide uh, of St Petersburg's Kunstkamera, for example, proudly displays on its front cover the images of embalmed limbless babies and parasitic twins growing out of each other's bodies and two-headed animals, all the while extolling any visit to the museum as the greatest possible fun for all the family. The 2012 exhibition Kunstkamera Guide is prepared and published under the Programme of Fundamental Research of the Proscidium of the RAS, the Historical and Cultural Heritage and Spiritual Values of Russia. So it's really quite an organised process. And although any museum is a product as much as a reflection of its time, the argument's been made that Peter the Great actually deliberately overrode the traditional Russian folkloric 
fear and overt displays of death. And those sympathetic to this perception of the Tsar attribute his energies towards building a centre of Russian academic and scientific achievement, but also to a sort of social experimentation that attempted to breed giants and dwarves. And that view of his involvement in the scientific development of the country somewhat generously extended to his support of the new epigenetic theory of human embryology that an embryo grew into an adult rather than the prevailing concept at the time of preformation, where all of the elements of the adult human were uh, at commencement already contained but in miniature. A simpler impression uh, would be or would commend him for accumulating examples of malformations in babies and animals in order to demystify their cause and dispel the idea that they were the work of the devil. But the origin, for example, of the Kunstkamera was therefore very different as a museum. The idea was that it was to hold these anatomical abnormalities and it was to openly display them to the public. A very different concept, for example, to the beginnings of the British, uh, the British Museum or the Museum of Natural History. And I'll come back to those issues because these were deliberate decisions of how museums should be um, uh, created and structured for the public. And I think that was important. For the doggedly persistent spectator, these sorts of museums, that is the anatomical museums, are certainly worthwhile seeking out. Some found behind modern laboratories and others located in cellars and underground vaults. If you go to Glasgow, that's certainly the case with the Hunterian Museum, or at least part of it. And their murky specimen pots often leak preservative resins and many have no defining order with jars and vitrines lined up alongside the skeletons of pygmies or acromegalic giants, tuberculous spines and syphilitic brains pooled with narwhal tusks and whale baleen and an assortment of bladder, kidney and gallstones. These museums each have their own personality and they're all quite remarkable. Today these places are generally restricted access, but once they were the main public show. It's accepted that it's somewhat difficult to conceptually discriminate any overarching philosophy which might underpin the nomination of a museum as distinctly anatomical. But we could include anywhere where there are human specimens, perhaps rather than their exhumed remains, or the products of dissection where there's been an attempt to use the cadaver as some sort of principal subject anatomicum. And in this broader definition, there's an established European collecting tradition of human body parts initially for personal satisfaction and then for private and ultimately public display, although the ethos of each collection was unique. But first, it's opportune <clears throat> before appreciating the early anatomical museums to divert a little in consideration of the origin of the public museum itself. And in this, the earlier collections combined or separated the naturalia, the local flora and fauna, from the artificialia, usually some hand-turned intricate knick-knacks produced on a lathe or other assembly of scientific instrumentation that could include timepieces and astrolabes, globes and maps. These flourished throughout Europe in the mid-16th century, principally as private compilations, with most maintaining 
a rather minimalist ordering of pieces with the structure of display not operating under any discrete philosophical lines of arrangement, but rather under the principle of accumulating as much material as possible. And these collections loaded up their rare and attractive offerings alongside those things that were pretty commonplace and that paying customers could see in any show. The collection was usually portable as a kammer or kammers, chambers or kunstschranks, which are art cupboards that could be moved for display and pay across the country. And this type of display was most commonly the private property of an emperor or a king and in a devoted state of local lords of the manor or likely the possessions and compendia of prominent clerics, scholars, aristocrats, physicians and apothecaries. And those of the apothecaries were particularly popular. They were filled with huge ornamental vials which contained a wide variety of apothecary powders and unguents, chamomiles, tarts, hypnotics and magnesias. Before the advent of the truly public general museum, some shows that tended to be fixed in Lacal began life as the Schatzkammern, the Chambers of Power, and these were collections which were established more as symbols of regional authority than as Wunderkammern, uh, Chambers of Wonder, replete with the opulent trappings of regal power and the jewel-encrusted paraphernalia of heritage and coronation rituals, or perhaps overlain with the handed-down precious booties of war. Some of these collections, the Schatzkammern, were expanded with elements which depicted the natural philosophies, including collections of corals and shells and mineral ore deposits, with the principal delight of shows the decorative and artful expositions of natural bounty laid alongside some sort of luxuriant artifice. Now, notable 16th and 17th century Schatzkammern included the Kremlin Museum, that ideally describes the Kremlin as you see it today, the Frederick II Copenhagen Library, which was established in 1648, the Schloss Ambras Armory of Innsbruck, which was uh, put together by Archduke Ferdinand II in 1564, the Vienna Habsburg Schatzkammer, for example, the Faragotha Heraldry Collection of Gaspar Galceran de Guerra Aragoni Pino uh, from the 16th century, the Imperial Munich Schatzkammer of Duke Albert V of Bavaria. These are all examples of this kind uh, of thing that are still available to see. Among these open displays, some physicians had created public spaces for the viewing of what amounted to their personal obsessions, collections that had been amassed over a lifetime and that were imbued with the highly individual stamp of the collector. It was only later on that these places entered the general vocabulary when the art historian Julius von Schlosser, 1866-1938, collated his history of exhibitions in his 1908 Die Kunst und Wunderkammern des which established some of the collection terminology. In von Schlosser's schema, small rooms of paraphernalia 
historically expanded into halls of display, originally starting off life as what the French called their études, their studies of the 14th century. The Italians referred to it as their studioli of the 15th and 16th centuries. But by 1550, they transformed into the Kunstkammer, the chambers of art, quod est artificiozarum conclave, the Wunderkammern, or Wunderkammern, the chambers of marvels, id est miraculosarum rerum promptuarium, and the Kunstschrank and the art cupboards. And these latter art cupboards were typically filled to the brim with the most prized possession of the collector and were meant to be portable, permitting a busy, lecturing gentleman of science the opportunity to travel from town to town whilst holding on to the wonders of his personal experiments and the squeamish products of his dissection. These were generally items from which he couldn't, during these sojourns, bear to be separated. Uh, in France, they, they were the Cabinet d'Arte de Curiosité. In Italy, they are someone known as the Camera d'Arte e di Meraviglia. And in some, the setup was as, as a Theatrum Mundi, a theatre of the world, or a Theatrum Sapienti, a theory of no, a, a theatre of uh, knowledge. So there were these tremendous variants, but basically of the same kind of thing. And these open collections were prominent draw cards for the major university towns, which became requisite stopovers where the young landed gentry could obtain a pluralistic education. Such an exposure to knowledge was meant to encompass an idealistic exposition that might possess a, quote, the most perfect and general library alongside a spacious and wonderful garden, unquote. An example of this total experience was created, you can still see it, in the Palazzo Poggi in Bologna, using the original idea of General Luigi Ferdinando Marsilli, 1658-1730, where the art collection of the convent of Sant'Ignazio, the Pinacoteca and the Accademia di Belle Arti, was confiscated and combined with the botany collection housed at the Palazzino della Viola. And these collections were reorganised with Ulisse Aldrovandi's Theatre of Nature, or uh, Ferdinando Cospi's Museo Cospi, as well as with the transfer of specimens from, in Bologna's case, the Archiginasio in 1711, converting the old Accademia Clementina, the Clementine Academy, into the Palazzo Poggi as we know it today, and establishing the new Istituto della Scienze with a museum, an observatory, a laboratory and a library. The idea that you could get to a museum of everything uh, was a very kind of Bolognese uh, uh, invention. Uh, such was a kind of intellectual idealism that the earliest forms, fruist of galleries and museums, presented the public with an eclectic mix of the natural philosophies, melding astronomical charts with detachable anatomical mannequins and figurines, random ossuaries and articulated skeletons <coughs> with fossils and death masks. In the 16th century, similar idiosyncratic collections afforded each city some measure of notoriety, with the curators often gaining as much fame as their naturalia collections, the most celebrated of whom included the apothecary Francesco Calzolari of Verona, naturalists uh, like Ulisse Aldrovandi, 
1522 to 1605, and Ferdinand de Cospi, who we briefly met, 1606 to 1686 in Bologna. The physician Michele Mercati, 1541 to 1593 in Rome, and the apothecary Ferrante Imperato, who was born around 1525 and died around 1615 uh, and lived in Naples. Each paid a particularly slavish devotion to the exhibition of exotic plants, many of which had made their way from the recently discovered New World, where some, like the Guayacum sudorific wood of Hispaniola, held out the promise of a cure for the Renaissance scourge of syphilis. The uh, most famous, uh, I think, of these men and the most competitive was probably Aldrovandi, who was Bologna's professor of natural history and the head of her uh, Hortus, uh, her uh, botanical gardens. His rival, Mercati, in Rome, combined his responsibilities as papal physician with managing the Vatican gardens. So these people were fairly versatile. The rough displays of anatomy openly contested with the nearby freak shows, brimful with their contortionists, bearded ladies, pinheads, albinos, giants, dwarves, and folkamelic youngsters born with flipper-like hands and feet. A trend for acts like these to make their way into distinguished cabinets as live exhibits could be considered one of the earliest but also the most successful of marketing strategies. For his cabinet of curiosities, the Bolognese showman Cospi hired the dwarf siblings Sebastiano and Angelica Biavati to show the customers around his vast collection of naturalia, just as Peter the Great had employed the dwarf Foma as his museum usher, and several hermaphrodites with grotesque genital deformities who were paid to perform as museum showcases. Actually, as an aside, after working at the Kunstkamera for 14 years, Foma, or Foma Ignatiev, who stood at 126 centimetres tall, was dissected and stuffed after his death and was part of the museum display until he was destroyed by a fire. The skeleton Peter's personal footman, the seven-foot giant Nicolas Bourgeois, is currently in a glass case at the entrance to the anatomy section of the Kunstkamera alongside the remains of the Reich collection. And the preserved heart of Bourgeois lies under his portrait by George Gassel, Bourgeois' genitals were at one time on display, but they have been lost. And other live exhibits were shown because of their obscure genitals and included the hermaphrodites Yakov and Stefan and a fraternal set of Siberian twins, one of whom escaped from the museum in 1742. So these were real live exhibits. As the public lust for the obscure advanced almost unchecked, the Kunstkammern acquired even more bizarre and eclectic collections, with Reich, for example, claiming in his personal catalogue the dissected remains of exotic animals, the baleen from the mouth of a sperm whale and the skeleton of a real mermaid. For some, like Dr Joseph Kahn, 1820-1878, who opened his Museum of Anatomy in 1851 in London, the line between showmanship and decorum was invariably crossed, with the ultimate demise of his show accelerated when he decided not only to include anatomical monstrosities, but when he combined his shows 
with the hawking quack remedies of a local peddler of cure-alls for venereal disease. As an aside, the Khan show became progressively more lurid and sexual when he collaborated with a Dr Jordan and his family who claimed to have developed effective treatments for most venereal diseases. Khan's medical training, if any, was subsequently questioned when he was tried in uh, January 1874 for representing himself as a doctor whilst not actually being on the UK medical register, and the show closed in 1878. Khan was also swept up in the 1857 Obscene Publications Act, which ensured that some of his models had to be publicly destroyed. It's a very interesting separate subject that we should make uh, a podcast just on Dr. Joseph Kahn. Although the show was forced to close soon afterwards, the connection, at least in the minds of the public, of anatomical displays with the rather seedier side of sexual practice remained uh, to the detriment of anatomists. Many of the medical cabinets contained anatomical imitations, mostly as models and occasionally with anatomically correct mannequins. The predecessor of these models was a series of thin sheets, which we've mentioned before, adherent to drawings of the body, which could be progressively lifted or peeled away to reveal the deeper layers of anatomy. Vesalius was perhaps the first to divide these, devise these aid memoirs, which became known as the fugitive sheets, plastering them onto real skeletons in mock dissection. Miniature ivory mannequins produced in the 16th century, largely in Germany, were also popular, with their little abdominal and chest walls which could be lifted off to show a small heart, a tiny separate coil of the intestines, a fragment of the stomach and spleen, or an open pregnant womb. Um, In contrast to elaborate wax sculptures which were being made in the same time period, the mannequins didn't show much uh, anatomical precision or intricacy, and as speculated they've been used more as training tools, particularly for midwives. Both tactile and interactive, they provide a rudimentary appreciation of the pelvic anatomy and a cursory view of the genitals that might have perhaps satisfied the elemental learning needs of an attending 17th century accoucheur. It's of course quite possible that they could also satisfy the more prurient interests of some private collectors to simply peer inside a woman and were part and parcel of a compendium of expensive devices at the time, like the camera obscura or the fashionable lenses and prisms that any Elizabethan autodidact would wish to possess. There's a very nice little mannequin at the um, front entrance of the John Hunter Museum in London. Papier-mâché wax and ivory simulacra were, however, legitimate alternatives to dissection of the cadaver, each designed really to circumvent the unpleasant business of dissecting the human body. And some of the models would have been very practical items which beyond display would have served as the anatomist's equivalent in training to the artist's écorché. Substituting the look and the feel of cadaveric dissection with a simulated experience, after all, finds its parallels in many university anatomy departments today. 
I mean, the, the modern era of computerised graphic imagery, including three-dimensional reconstruction and printing, as well as techniques of image post-processing, such as rotational scrolling and volume or surface rendering, all provide a visual experience of the surface or the internal anatomy that can replace the dissected cadaver. The surgical simulation devices, which connect to video screens, can also provide some haptic or tactile feedback necessary to simulate the physical process and feel of cutting and separating tissues, potentially even replacing dissection itself. And these have been supplemented by the Cryosliced Visible Human Project, created in 1995 by the US National Library of Medicine. I'll go into that in a bit more detail in a later podcast. These human specimens uh, were CT and MR imaged and then frozen and sectioned with a microtome, uh, which is really just a refined meat slicer, to provide a wholly digitised human for anatomical study. Um, We'll go into that sort of thing uh, uh, later on. For a while, the houses of wax were preeminent places of anatomical study, even if at its start, and as it continues to do today, the, perhaps the most famous representative of these, La Specula in Florence, nestled against the Pitti uh, uh, Palace, still places its sculpted wax anatomies alongside the stuffed remnants and the skeletons of endangered species collected by the Museo di Storia Naturale, the Natural History Museum. Actually, amongst that little uh, list of naturalia, when you go to La Specula, outside is all this sort of zoological animal, stuffed animals. And there is also the stuffed hippopotamus, which had been a pet of the Medici family and which had gained local notoriety by roaming free in the nearby Bobbly Gardens. To get to the wondrous anatomical models, the visitor goes through all these rooms filled with the Australian thylacines and goliath beetles, the wax anatomy separated off by a chained wrought iron fence. You can't get in. You can just see over the fence. And this specialist anatomical museum devoted to the representation of a perfected style of dissections in wax was a unique tradition which reached its height in the 18th century and which was used not only as an alternative to cadaveric dissection but whose exquisitely carved pieces were made for the public including some small but spectacular wax dioramas which showed the terrifying corporeal and social effects of the plague and of syphilis. That La Specula Museum is currently closed for innovation. I don't know if it's going to open in the middle of COVID-19. I think it could be another couple of years before it opens. Um, in the same way that the Theatre Anatomia of Bologna and Padua were in competition, so too did the waxworks of Florence and Bologna vie for the pride of place, uh, employing a, a rather diverse group of exceptional wax modellers alongside their best anatomists. Founded in 1771 in Florence, La Specula was the brainchild of the enlightened Grand Duke of Tuscany, Pietro Leopoldo, Leopold I, 1747-1792, beginning its life as the small moralistic power plays of an ascetic Jesuit priest, Gaetano Giulio Zumbo, or Zumo, 
1606-1701, in his wax tableau, the so-called Theatres of Death, which is one of the first things that you see when you enter uh, La Specula. And these are little models. They're not strictly anatomical pieces, but they do show a deep understanding by Zumba, not only of surface, but also of internal anatomy. And here in these little models are the physical and also the moral consequences awaiting the degenerate souls who are trapped in syphilitic bodies. They're twisted and corrupted and emptied of their blackened, putrefied viscera, their intestines, which are thrown about the landscape nearby. For an unaware public audience, this is what a foulness of spirit looks like inside. Other Zumbo pieces almost celebrate the collapse of the nose and the facial ravages of chronic destructive venereal disease. In his Il Morbo Gallico, the French disease, Zumbo's anatomic vision is at once everything one has ever read about the catastrophic introduction of syphilis into Western Europe as it boarded the returning ships of Columbus. But even though it's a story of the past, Zumbo's narrative simultaneously portends a futuristic apocalypse. His La Peste, the plague, a frenzied take on the Black Death that took one-third of the city in the 1340s, is a less structured piece, but equally compelling, strewing about the black gangrenous bodies even of babies and dogs. In an unimaginable display of suffering, loose skulls are gathered about a crypt holding a complete skeleton, all taking place under the watchful eyes of the Virgin Mother. His finest models were made in collaboration with the French surgeon Guillaume Denoux, 1650 to 1735, who in 1695 was actually the head of surgery in, uh, in Genoa. Zumba used uh, really a combination of beeswax, white virgin wax from Smyrna and Venice, an insect wax derived from the Chinese and Indian homoptera scale insects, the Cyroplastes seriferus, and Chinese and Japanese um, Ericeris pella species. Zumba and Danu actually fell out over their business partnership of wax models and uh, the rights to that, and each possessed to the uh, original wax designs. And Zumba eventually left for Marseille to work for the court of Louis XIV. Uh, but the finest examples, I think, of the wax art were made by Clemente Sussini, 1754-1814, who collaborated with the best available contemporaneous dissectors, one Felice Fontana, who ran the La Specula, 1730-1805, and also the anatomist Paola Mascagni, 1755-1815, who had a real interest in the lymphatic system. Beyond the legacy of hard wax mimetics of the bones, which are lined up against every spare wall in this small museum, La Specula, are Sussini's most excellent pieces, displaying these lace-like lymphatics of the body. Sussini imbued his sculpted bodies with a unique tenderness and a reflective humanity that became his hallmark and which so enthralled the sculptor Antonio Carnava, 1757 to 1822, and which also excited the Marquis de Sade, 1740 to 1814. Nearly 250 years later, the colours of these 
Sassini masterpieces are vibrant. The muscles flushed with cinnabar, Prussian blue and sepia, the intricate vasculature infused to its most peripheral radicals with a combination of beeswax, Chinese insect waxes, sperm oil, tallow and resins. The nerves are laid out like rows of fine spaghetti stiffened by linen threads and silk, the tendons buffed with a matte gold finish. And the complete details of Sassini's closely guarded recipe of wax mimicry and fixation are still uncertain. Much has been written about his skill in the production of his anatomical venuses, divine wax carvings of women whose abdominal and thoracic walls can be lifted off and removed to reveal the intricate anatomy inside. In Bologna, Sassini's gift of a Venus is called a venerina, his presence of similar pieces to Pavia, Cagliari and uh, uh, Cagliari and Vienna sharing the same wistful, pained expression. Even though each is unique, their commonality is to lie on satin sheets, now mostly threadbare, with soft pillows, flaxen plaited hair and wax necklaces, their thorax and abdomen dismounted to reveal the visceral relations which can be deconstructed and reconstructed at leisure. Sassini's Venuses and Venerinas are permeated with a mortal personality which compels one to imagine them even gifted some semblance of free will. Seeming neither willing participants nor rebellious objectors to their own dissections, they unwittingly figure more like religious pieces than anything else, their expression and bearing capturing the overt eroticism that in other works is part of the sculptural spiritualism of the rapture. Comparisons have been made between their facial appearance and that of Gian Lorenzo Bernini's 1674 sculpture of the blessed Ludovica Albertoni, which sits in the Altieri Chapel of San Francesco Aripa in Rome. Albertoni's countenance sort of communicates that liminal boundary, really, between agonising and ecstatic pain at the mystical point of communion with God. And that's the sort of impression Sassini has created on his Venuses and Venerina. Sassini's offerings are no less affecting. His Venerinas and Venuses exposing their own blissful anguish under the dissecting knife. With his models fully dismounted and with their organs lying like small chess pieces alongside an open abdomen, a tiny, fully formed fetus is revealed in utero. Intentional or otherwise, the anatomy seems to take a back seat to the erotica. While Sassini became so accomplished that his waxes were shipped by mule to Vienna's Josephinum Palace for Emperor Joseph II's collection at the Military Academy of Medicine and Surgery, the Bolognese were establishing their own wax legacy with Ercola Lelli, 1702-1766, focusing on écorchés, and the husband and wife team of Giovanni Manzolini, 1700-1755, and his wife Anna Morandi Manzolini, 1714-1774, concentrating on the different body systems, mostly the sense organs, the heart and the reproductive organs of both sexes. 
when Giuseppe Mansolini suddenly died of the dropsy, uh, his 40-year-old widow, Anna, was left with two young children, but she trained herself in the art, creating one of the finest wax anatomical workshops in Europe under the patronage of Bologna's Archbishop Prospero Lambertini. It would not be unreasonable to suggest um, that she was instrumental in reviving the intellectual fortunes of the city after its renowned university, the Madre degli Studi, the Mother of Learning, had fallen somewhat into decline. Even though the enlightened Lambertini, who became Pope Benedict XIV, commissioned a new Bolognese Institute of Sciences with Morandi at its head, she was pilloried from within by the Professor of Anatomy, Petronio Zecchini, who railed against her specimens in the introduction to his own textbook on anatomy. And in it, he explained how her work as a woman could only diminish the discipline itself, contaminating the students with the mind of a woman whom he believed was rendered intellectually inferior merely because she possessed a uterus. Lambertini was singularly uh, liberal concerning the academic place of women in Bologna, a remarkable man, ensuring that Mirandi could continue her controversial work under an annual stipend, and actively in 1732 defending the rights of Laura Bassi, 1771-1778, as the first woman to receive a degree from the university. Uh, the <clears throat> most excellent book on uh, Anna uh, Morandi Mansolini is uh, Rebecca Mesbarger's The Lady Anatomist, The Life, of work, uh, Life and Work of Anna Morandi Mansolini by the University of Chicago Press in 2010. It's a really excellent book. And there's a wonderful uh, painting of Laura Bassi, <coughs> who was a professor of physics in the 18th century, appointed by Prospero Lambertini, the Archbishop of Bologna, um, there's a wonderful uh, um, portrait of her at the Palazzo Poggi in Bologna. In the case of Petronio Ignazio Zecchini, who was the professor of anatomy, he hated Morandi Mansolini because of the fact, <coughs> because of the fact that she was a dissecting woman, and he wrote his book Di Geniali della Dialettica della Donna Ridotta al suo vero principio. Uh, basically to suggest that it was inappropriate for anyone to consider reviewing her work merely because of the fact that she was a woman. Across the channel in the winter of 1776, as Sassini was producing his remarkable work, Honoré Fragonard had opened his unique exhibition at the veterinary school on the outskirts of Paris. And these pieces were deemed so shocking that the city arbiters of Cultural censorship insisted that only those écorchés from which, quote, the natural parts have been removed, unquote, could even be shown. Like Reich and von Schwammerdam, Fragonard kept part of his preservation technique a secret. There were some commonalities in the injection of still warm bodies with combinations of mutton fat, tallow, resin and dyes, which was sufficiently pliable that single injection techniques, often directly into the chambers of the heart, could make their way down to fill the smallest vessels without breaking them on hardening. Vermilion powder, which is mercuric sulphide, was mixed for the red colour of the arteries. The veins were doused with azurite, Prussian blue or ash blue, 
and the white nerves were separately painted with Saru's spirit of uh, satin, which is basically lead carbonate. Fragonard's work stands out uniquely in the history of anatomical exposition for several reasons. His écorchés are unusual, part, partly because of the over-distension of the veins. Uh, if you go and see his museum uh, at Alfort on the outskirts of Paris, his man with mandibles, a frightening example made of a man allegorically holding the jawbone of an ass, the veins throughout the open chest and in the fold of the right elbow in particular are so overinflated that they've created a kind of bluish vermicular haze over that part of the body. It's, for example, quite possible that in his injecting, Fragonard was stymied by the valves within the veins and may have had to have over-injected in order to dispel air, which had inadvertently entered the vascular tree. High pressures would have been required to distribute these dyes and resins creating a sort of vortex of grossly distended veins, which aren't really a feature of normal human anatomy. And that's the first impression I had of looking at this, that it's not only a frightening piece, but it just looks over-distended. And on first seeing the Ecorche of the Man with the Mandel, I was immediately struck by how limited such a piece would have been for those engaged in studying vascular anatomy, even when one of Fragonard's aims was the creation of a distinctly vascularised écorché. The positions of the great veins in particular, although clearly identifiable, are so distorted that it makes it almost impossible to gain any real appreciation of their relationship to other structures. And these rather coarsely distended écorchés made by Fragonard and his assistants are strikingly different to the subtle and intricate beauty of the vascular ramifications that had been prepared by Sassini. Now, admittedly, Fragonard is dealing with the real thing, whereas Sassini was modelling, but the technical differences impact the art. During Fragonard's treatment in the second phase after injection, the whole body <coughs> was completely immersed in alcohol and then dried out so that after positioning it was coated in a large resin, a larix europea, which gave it a hide-tanned appearance and which was resistant to vermin and worms and insect larvae. That explains why Fragonard's material is still here 200 years later, or 250 years later. Although there was much that was secretive about this step with the use of mastics such as pistachia lentiscus, the spirit of turpentine, or Canada balsam, abies balsamia and the like, it's quite possible that Fragonard had borrowed the technique of varnishing and translated its use from that uh, which his cousin, the famed Rococo court painter Jean-Honoré Fragonard, 1732-1806, had described for paintings. And the way Fragonard splays his muscles, as for example in his Horseman, which is the most famous a rider and horse, both uh, as écorchés, both skinned and peeled, their leathery consistency and the manner in which they're separated, these are the muscles, in such an exploded fashion, would also have limited their value in the myological study of anatomy. Muscles leave impressions on the bones. These are the insertion points. They have specific points of origin and insertion. And none of these features are really clearly evident with Fragonard's écorchés. And I'd suggest that beyond their artistry, they would have offered very limited pedagogic value to students really interested in muscle orientation. 
these ecochets are even today, I think, particularly alarming to look at, part of their menace lying in the stare of their porcelain eyes. And in one case, because of the grossly overinflated tumescence of the penis that's in the man with mandible. To add to the mystery, the Swedish naturalist Karl Asmund Rudolfi, 1771-1832, who was entrusted with the task in 1802 of annotating all the specimens in the Alfor Museum that Fragonard made, began the rumour that the rider on the horse was an old girlfriend of Fragonard, who he'd, been, who he'd dug up and skinned for presentation. It was reinforced by the rather apparently wistful looks that Fragonard gave whenever this girl, the daughter of a local grocer, was ever mentioned. But the fact that the rider actually has a stump of a penis which had been amputated so that he could more squarely sit on the flayed horse, I don't think should get in the way of a good story. By 1771, Fragonard's direct superior, Claude Bourgelin, 1712-1779, the autocratic head of the veterinary school at Alfort, had in a letter publicly declared Fragonard a lunatic and had him dismissed from office. But there was no history of insanity from a man who, if anything, hid from the limelight and who was a workaholic. And despite the accusations, Fragonard continued on as if nothing had happened, commissioning many private preservation pieces, and he was soon appointed to the jury Nationale des Arts, along with Napoleon's favourite artist, Jacques-Louis David. Fragonard was then subsequently appointed to the School of Health two years later as the chief of anatomical works, collaborating with the likes of renowned surgeons Guillaume Dupetron, Félix Vic Désir, Marie-Francoise Javier Bichat and Dominique Jean Larie and it seemed that the tag of lunacy had really very little effect on his reputation. The anatomical collections of Reich and Fragonard rely for their success on their unique techniques of preservation and on adept anatomical mimicry, even if in their exploitation of human anatomy the raison d'etre of either man differed markedly. There's no doubt whatsoever that both men presented their impassioned pleas of preserved human anatomy for public consumption. In showcasing his dioramas as a prominent part of his collection, Reich was portraying anatomy as a moralistic passion play, which he populated with real anatomical detritus. In his mind, a reconfigured artery or piece of intestine could then be viewed in another context, not only as a thing of beauty, but also in the contribution its participation made towards a higher purpose. Fragonard, on the other hand, was presenting his uh, anatomies more as the harsh reality of dissection, comparing the structure of man and other animals by hypercolorizing their vascular and neural networks as stylistic pieces of art. Both men unsuccessfully petitioned their respective governments for the foundation of a National Museum of Anatomy, but I suspect that both would have been equally at home with acceptance of their work in some form of national gallery of humankind. They were anatomists, surely, but principally craftsmen. It's only in the Florentine and Bolognese waxworks that there was a greater anatomical verisimilitude and a higher fidelity towards the underlying structure of the human body. 
Those like Lely, Mansolini and Morandi were not anatomists, but like architects, their vision exceeded mere craftsmanship. The paradox here is that the simulacra of Sassini and Morandi seemingly achieve a more authentic depiction of the dissected cadaver in wax than Fragonard and Reich could accomplish with the real thing. As the moulding medium, wax had set the competing impetus of art and anatomy on a collision course. Italian products were deemed more beautiful and sanitised than their English and German counterparts, the latter telling a far more brutal story of dissection and disfiguring disease. Some comparative English houses of wax were less anatomical environments and more personalised in their interest in the celebrity portraiture of politicians and socialites, epitomised, for example, by Madame Marie Tussaud, 1761-1850, who escaped the Napoleonic Wars and who opened her wax works in London in 1835. But English anatomists soon realised the commercial value and wax figures appeared in Benjamin Rackstraw's Fleet Street Museum of Anatomy and Curiosities between 1746 and 1798, as well as in Dr Kahn's Piccadilly Anatomy Museum, which ran, as I said, between 1851 to 1878. These types of exhibits, however, were short-lived attracting only a fairground crowd intent on the titillation of peeking at some internal female anatomy. Both anatomical museums salaciously gravitated towards the vulgar and soon became unfashionable. By contrast, Joseph Town, 1808-1879, working at Guy's Hospital in London, when so many real cadavers had been made available after passage of the 1832 Anatomy Act, fashioned a set of nearly a thousand wax anatomical models in various stages of dissection. Many of these were far less romantic in style than their Florentine or Bolognese counterparts, with some displaying only pure pathology and many demonstrating the raw violation of radical dissection. These can be now seen at the Gordon Museum at King's College in London. By the middle of the 19th century, despite the fact that there was a relatively free access to an unlimited supply of cadavers to dissect, there were still those who searched for the ideal cadaver surrogate. Even at the height of his Florentine anatomy waxworks, the founding father of La Specola had remained convinced that wood was a far more suitable medium than wax with which to mould the inner structure of the human body. Uh, that is Felice Fontana, and a century after his death it was one of Fontana's little demountable wooden bodies which had made its way from his estate to that of the physician Louis Thomas Jérôme Ozu, 1797-1880. Ozu had already seen the models of Jean-Francois Ameline, the professor of anatomy at Cayenne, who had affixed small pieces of card onto human skeletons, and it gave Ozu an idea Working with pressed paper, pulp, cork and glue, a zoo moulded the most stunning papier-mâché models of human and animal bodies ever seen, each hand-painted with its superimposed network of arteries, nerves and veins. And demand for these models became so great that a zoo's factory in Normandy's saint aubin de Corville established a Parisian office 
just for international shipments. Zoo uh, called his product Clastique after the Greek claim to separate and the technique of painting on the distribution of vessels and nerves leads obviously to some inaccuracy and it doesn't permit really the demonstration of anatomical variations nor does it clearly demonstrate the depth relationships of structures to one another. I think the same limitations have also been noted with anatomical models which are currently made using uh, 3D printers. The Zoo's factory was opened in 1822. The Parisian shipment office, which was at number 8 Rue de Pain, opened in 1833. And after closing in the early 2000s, the models have been housed in the Musée de l'Ecorche Neuburg in Normandy. His factory also produced large models of horses and flowers, birds, fish and insects. Around this time, Pierre Spitzner, 1833 to 1896, opened his Grand Musée Anatomique in Paris in 1856, purveying not only dissected human anatomy, but also the famous conjoined twins, Giovanni Battista and Giacomo Tocci, who were fused at the chest and who shared only two legs. And these two were displayed alongside a raft of fetal malformations and a variety of disfiguring surgical operations. In one of the wax models, a pair of disembodied surgical hands performs a caesarean section on a young woman, a frozen look of utter distress on her face. Two more pairs of isolated assistants' hands are clasped around her waist, appearing to restrain her, and her uterus is revealed with its unborn baby inside. It's the only visceral part of the wax figure shown through her white theatre gown, her bunioned feet submissively tied together with a loose sheet. Spitzen acquired much of his uh, specimens and some of his ideas from the head surgeon of the Hôtel Dieu in Paris, Guillaume Dupetron. Um, Spitzner unsuccessfully tried to open a museum in London in 1903. The collection was merged into the Musée d'Anatomie d'Elma Orphila Rouvière in central Paris, which combined the Faculty of Medicine's collection of the Dean Mathieu Orphila with the lymphatic collection of Henri Rouvière, and the bulk of this combined collection was shifted in 2011 to the Faculty of Medicine at uh, Montpellier, where it, it can be seen as a very small Spitzner collection there. Parts of the exhibition were considered so salacious that they were contained in a special room with restricted access, and there was much debate over whether women should be allowed entry. Regardless of the philosophical approach and the style of the end product, these anatomical collections influenced the formation of the public museums by directing their curators on precisely what not to exhibit. Directors of the new public gallery spaces in the main made the conscious decision not to highlight fetal congenital malformations, stillbirths, gross pathologies and acquired deformities as their showcase centrepieces but rather to emphasise the ethnicity of man, his anthropological journey and his social development. That's how museums developed. This was as much the legacy of the new Darwinism as it was the rejection of the Gothic parade of embryological and genetic screw-ups 
and it was a decision which ultimately drove many of the more traditional anatomical collections underground and away uh, from the public gaze. Afterwards, anatomy, and in particular anatomy of the skull, became a pretext for those intent on separating the races and whose agenda was to promote the notion of the impossibility of a common ancestor, the theory of monogenism for Homo sapiens. Such was the perversity of the ethnographic anatomists. The quest to define ethnicity provided an opportunity to exploit anatomical differences and through the collection of skulls to use the measurable variations in cranial size and shape in a push to advance the notion of Caucasian intellectual superiority. And there were many anatomists with their collections of skulls, stolen skulls at that, who were part of this particular notion of racial development and Caucasian superiority. Later on, for others, if one is to be more charitable, they used their osseous collection to advance a misguided campaign of eugenics. Many anatomists spent a lifetime collecting skulls which they ranked according to region of origin, race, social history and even personality. In his 1794 book, The Connection Between the Science of Anatomy and the Arts of Painting, Drawing, Statuary, etc., Petrus Camper, one of the prelectors of Anatomiae of Amsterdam, ordered his personal cranial collection of orangutans, Barbary apes, sloths and manatees into a hierarchy of development and complexity 60 years before Darwin would promote his theory of evolution. In Camper's book, he compared the skulls of Hottentots with the Madagascans, Indonesian Celebes, Chinese Mongolian Kalmyks and Afghani Mughals. For Camper, each measured well below the preferred Caucasian European ideal. Camper was also the one who promoted the measurement of the facial angle, which was a crossing line between the jaw, the earlobe and the upper lip as a marker of development, and he concluded that, quote, the two extremities of the facial lines are from 70 to 100 degrees, from the Negro to the Grecian antique, make it under 70 and you describe an orang or an ape, lessen it still more and you have the head of a dog. At first glance, his book might have been considered some sort of prelude to the emerging discipline of anthropology, but its social impact was far more insidious, equating craniometric measurements amongst the races with intelligence. His narrative moved seamlessly from the protruding pragmatic jaws of Africans to the receding forehoods of Asians. The German physician Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, 1752-1840, would take it one step further, ordering his collection of skulls from the lowliest Ethiopian to the highest Caucasian ideal. In London, comparing his own vast collection of skulls with that of John Hunter, a confident Blumenbach had proudly proclaimed that a knowledge of the skin colour alone was sufficient to define intellectual and developmental capacities. Using his skulls, Blumenbach categorised the human race as Caucasian, American, Malay, Mongolian and Ethiopian. He writes of the value of craniometric measurements in his Decas Craniorum in 1779, which was a part of his work widely adopted to develop in theory, or some sort of theory, of scientific racism.
With the obsession to define race, the skull hunters on both sides of the Atlantic amassed their collections and advanced their theories. After the Pacific discoveries of Captain James Cook, 1728 to 1779, in the early 1770s, the naturalist Georges Cuvier, 1769 to 1832, wrote an enthusiastic letter of support for the newly planned Baudin Australian expedition of 1800 to 1803, which charted northern Australia and the southern Bath Strait and Tasmania. Cuvier strongly advised that all effort should be expended in this unique opportunity to find and bring back the, quote, savage skeleton, unquote. And in his submission, he describes in forensic detail how quick and easy it is to boil the bones in caustic potash and how to rapidly strip them of their flesh. Whilst many collectors spent much of their time desecrating the sacred burial sites of the more exotic tribes so that their bones and artefacts could be added to their personal European collections. <coughs> Some, like Bologna's professor of anatomy, Luigi Calori, 1807-1896, focused on provincial disparities, trying to single out the skull types that would match with those who'd even committed suicide. Philadelphia's Samuel Morton, 1799-1851, produced his 1839 Crania Americana and his follow-up, the 1844 Crania Egyptica, proposing his measurements of the cranial capacity as part of divine design. Examples of these sorts of skull collections include the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, started in 1884, with a private skull collection, about 22,000 archaeological artefacts, now expanded out to 130,000 and originally amassed by General Augustus Pitt Rivers, 1827-1900. There's a similar collection of 139 ordered skulls. The Hertel skulls, named after its collector, can be found at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. The obsession with obtaining the skulls of Australian Aboriginals and New Zealand Maoris is expertly outlined in Helen MacDonald's Human Remains Dissection and Its Histories, which was put out in 2006 by Yale University Press. And there's an excellent book called Severed, A History of Heads Lost and Heads Found, uh, written by Francis Larson uh, and put out uh, by the um, Livright uh, Publishing Company in New York in 2014. Getting back to Morton, according to Morton, the smaller skulls, those with presumptively more limited mental capacity, had been assigned to their natural geographical habitats by the preordained will of God. From there, he promoted the notion that the art of physiognomy, which is the prediction of someone's personality traits from their outward appearance and from the structure of their face in particular, could be successfully used to draw conclusions about expected racial behaviour. In Morton's calculus, Africans were inherently indolent and Native Americans had a predilection towards vengeance and warmongering, the total stereotypes. And even the renowned French neurologist Paul Brocard, 1824-1880, who defined the areas in the brain responsible for speech and its interpretation, succumbed to the allure of a morass of cranial measurement data 
but it ultimately convinced him of the mental inferiority of the non-Caucasian. So these were the ways anatomy was used in the 19th century to promote a racial agenda. A hundred years on, Morton's work promote, provoked an angry scientific debate started by the late Stephen Jay Gould, 1941-2002, to in which he claimed an unconscious bias in Morton's skull measurements. But this triggered a vociferous rebuke, perhaps designed to protect the integrity of the collection, where a repeat measurement of a selection of Morton's original skulls reconfirmed significant racial differences. Um, the jury is still out, not on Gould's conclusion, but on the accuracy of the original um, data. And so they're worth looking at these articles. There's uh, not only Samuel Morton's Crania Americana comparative view of the skulls of various Aboriginal nations of North and South America, to which is prefixed an essay on the varieties of the human species written in 1839, one can see Gould's original article, which was Morton's Ranking of Races by Cranial Capacity, which was written uh, in Science in 1978. He wrote a book on the subject, which was called The Mismeasure of Man in 1981, the publishers of W.W. Norton and Company. And the counter-argument was actually made by the anthropologist Jason Lewis in a 2011 article entitled The Mismeasure of Science, the Public Library of Science, which was put out. Um, the authors there were Leeson, D'Agusta, Meyer, Monge, Mann and Holloway. Gould didn't actually remeasure Morton's skulls, but Lewis did. 308 of Morton's original 670 skulls at any rate, and the veracity of the original data and how it was collected still remains much of a question. Uh, a subsequent article written on this was Weisberg's Remeasuring Man, which was put out in Evolution and Development in 2014. So there's still even debate about this data, craniometric data. The implications of this debate were, however, wider-ranging. 18th and 19th century skull hunters sought to pervert the philosophies of Hobbes and Rousseau and tried to assert the view that anatomical data was integral in promoting the belief that there was a rightful and even natural propensity for one ethnic group to exert its economic and political dominion over another. The prevailing drive was for anatomical ethnic separation, with as the physician and travelling raconteur François Bernier had written a nouvelle division de la terre, a sort of novel division of the earth by the different species of races which inhabit it. This was the prevailing uh, view. The byproducts of this drive for cerebral categorization in the 18th century fueled many of the ethnographic museums, and this energy spawned on one side a romantic intersection between anatomy and art, and on the other the wasteful bunk of phrenology, and that little haughty practice of divining the personality by feeling the bumps on people's heads held sway from the late 1790s until around about 1840. And such nonsense spawned a rash of scientific phrenology centres and groups designed to study its value, and they sprang up as private salons in England under the direction of George Combe, 1788-1858. And these clubs promoted the articulated philosophy of the founder of phrenology, Franz Josef Gaul, 1755-1828, 
namely one of a so-called Schadlehre, which was a doctrine of the skull in an attempt to define the typical recognisable characteristics of the criminal classes. Phrenology was actually spread zealously by Gaul's most ardent disciple, Johann Kasper Spurzheim, 1776-1832, and many proponents also practised metaposcopy, which examined the lines of the forehead in order to determine the personality traits. So where is this all going? The logical extension of this taxonomy was the characterisation of the deviants in society by their facial characteristics. The concept was promoted by the Italian criminologist Cesare Lombroso, 1835-1909, to and charted in his anatomical album, which defined precisely what a typical offender looked like. His 1876 L'Uomo Delinquente, the criminal man, was the product of his epiphany after he extensively studied the skull of a notorious Italian serial killer and noted that the impressions made by the murderous cerebellum on the inside of the occipital bone seemed identical to those he'd discovered in apes and rodents. The story was actually recounted by Lombroso's daughter in Criminal Men according to the classification of Cesare Lombroso by G. Lombroso Ferrero in 1913, so she carried on his particular work. But it was proof enough for Lombroso of the regression of the antisocial brain into something animalistic. And these categorizations, examining the quantifiable anatomical differences believed most important, became the prevailing notations not only for the definition of the various ethnic groups throughout the world, but also for humankind itself. The anatomical notion of what it was to be human encouraged the most fanciful ideas and displays. Well before Camper and Cuvier, Edward Tyson, 1651-1708, had tried through his 1699 Anatomy of a Pygmy to define humanity and to separate those features he thought uniquely belonged to the apes, principally the Angolan chimpanzees. Uh, Tyson's uh, Orangutan Sive Homo Silvestris, or The Anatomy of a Pygmy, was written in 1699, and is uh, still available in many university um, uh, libraries. Despite his belief in the ethnographic significance of the facial angle, Camper did not at least ascribe to the preposterous notion, widely believed in the 18th century, that some of the black races were the result of matings between women and orangs. With the expansion of global exploration and the greater contact with new peoples, adventurers brought home a range of tribesmen and savages as living exhibits. It was the ultimate display of the art of collecting, and boasted feral children found in the forests of France, and the first Tahitians, Ahuturo and Omai, introduced to polite English society by Louis de Bougainville, 1729-1811, and also by Sir Joseph Banks, 1743-1820. For many, behind all the intellectual discussion driven by defined points of cranial anatomical difference, there was an underlying desire to distinguish those noble savages sufficiently human that they might be converted to the Christian faith from those destined only for enslavement. Mm -hmm.